0: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with Hoops Bay from On the Media, Backstory, The Laura Flanders Show, The Majority Report, and Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff.
1: By combing through contemporaneous newspapers as well as official records, the Equal Justice Initiative added 700 victims to the list of more than 3,200 African Americans already known to have been lynched between 1877 and 1950. And that's just in the 12 southern states studied from Texas to Virginia. The initiative wants to commemorate the now-corrected record by placing markers at some of the lynching sites. But most important, says law professor Brian Stevenson and director of the Equal Justice Initiative, it seeks to reclassify the great northward migration of African Americans as an exodus of refuge from terrorism.
2: There was an awareness that if you were white and you were offended by some person of color, not just victimized with a crime, but offended, you had the latitude to respond to that in any way you wanted, and if that included lethal violence, torturous violence and lynching, uh, you were going to be protected. And in my view, that made all lynchings of African-Americans during this era systematic. You assert that even if a mob does form
1: spontaneously, the prevailing sentiment of permission took any sense of spontaneity Out of the event, it just became part of
2: an overall social pathology. You'd see in some of the imagery from these events, people posing next to the victim's dangling body because there was no sense of shame. There was no sense of legal liability following these things. The true evil of slavery, in my opinion, was not involuntary servitude. The true evil of slavery was this narrative of racial difference, this ideology of white supremacy, this notion that these black people are not not fully human. And the difficulty we have in this country is that our 13th Amendment, which prohibited involuntary servitude, didn't deal with the narrative. And in that respect, uh, I don't believe slavery ended at the end of the Civil War. It just evolved. Every white person was fully deputized in the shadow system of justice. That's exactly right. And once the federal troops left at the end of Reconstruction, people were encouraged to use violence to enforce compliance. Some of the lynchings that we highlight in our report reveal this. There was a man named Jesse Thornton who was lynched in Laverne, Alabama, 1940, for referring to a white police officer by his name without the title of Mr and he was grabbed, and he was killed. Uh, In 1919, a white mob in Blakely, Georgia, lynched William Little, who was a returning soldier from World War I, an African-American man, and they were antagonized by him wearing his Army uniform, and so he refused to take his uniform off, and he was lynched. A man named Jeff Brown in 1916 was running through Cedar Bluff, Mississippi, to catch a train. He bumped into a white girl. And he was lynched. The idea that he had some place important to be that might cause him to even casually bump into this white woman was an offense of disorder. And so he was lynched. That kind of violence, that kind of oppression was being enforced only because there was this system that did deputize every white person to engage in this kind of subordination. I'm puzzled
1: as to how contemporaneous newspaper accounts of lynchings and other violence against southern blacks provided a whole lot of information for you. It would suggest that there was some degree of sympathy or fact-finding in the reporting at the time, which, well, it it would be a shock to me that Southern papers were even-handed in their coverage of these vigilante crimes. Oh,
2: they clearly were not. When you look at the coverage, it's often quite celebratory. And so we were able to understand the ugliness of it because they didn't see it as ugly, and they were therefore comfortable detailing it how many times the person was shot, how much mutilation took place, how the person was carved up, whether there was collateral violence directed at other black homes and black churches and black community members. All of that would sometimes be detailed, both because it served to reinforce the narrative and to expand the terror. But it's also true that the source of a lot of our information was actually a very strong and robust black media, a black press. There were dozens of black newspapers that formed all over the country that became quite attentive to these acts of violence. They were trying to document them to show the federal government that there was a need to return the federal troops. There was a need for federal intervention and protection. It's really in reviewing those sources that had not been exhaustively reviewed uh, before that we found a lot of the really rich detail surrounding these lynchings. You
1: assert that we have historically... Misunderstood the great migration northward by African Americans who we have long assumed to have been seeking opportunity in the large industrial cities of the North when they moved in the years mainly surrounding World War II. And you say that the evidence that you have gathered suggests that they were not seeking opportunity but
2: fleeing terror. Throughout the 20th century, the experience of African Americans in the South was very different In the experience of others these weren't people heading to the west in response to the dust bowl or the depression these were people many of whom fled between 1900 and 1925 as this violence began to peak and we did lots of interviews with people who were telling us about what they called near executions where they would send their son or their daughter or their husband or their parent to the north because they'd had an encounter with some white person in town, and they weren't sure if the mob might not show up that night. And looking at the evidence around some of these lynchings it was a shock to me to find out how often the last uh, words of a lynching victim would be, uh, "Tell my people to flee." And in interviewing uh, the children and, and grandchildren of some of these lynching victims, there was no question that they fled as refugees. And even when you look at these cities that are now strongly influenced by a large black population, Cleveland, Chicago, Detroit, Los Angeles, Oakland. You look at the history of people of color in these communities, they weren't actually given great jobs when they came, and in many ways they continue to remain marginalized. They achieved some measure of security from the kind of overt terrorism that lynching represented, but they were still subordinate. And that's why I think that you cannot understand this migration without understanding the terrorism that inspired it.
1: You wear another hat, and that is to provide defenses and appeals for those on death row perhaps unjustly convicted or inappropriately sentenced to death. Mm -hmm. I assume that you see a far more than casual association between today's criminal justice system and the legacy of lynchings in the South. Or am I overstating the case?
2: No, I think there absolutely is a continuing uh, problem in America that is rooted in our failures to deal more honestly with this history in the past. There's been a lot of protests recently in response to police shootings of unarmed black men. And these protests are responses to not just a single incident in Ferguson or Staten Island. It's in response to lives being lived where people feel targeted and menaced by the police. I work in a criminal justice system where I've seen that presumption of guilt send many innocent people to jails or prisons for crimes they didn't commit. I've even been in a courtroom as an attorney uh, and been the target of some of this. I was in a courtroom in the Midwest not that long ago sitting at the defense counsel's table with my suit on, and the judge walked out, and he saw me sitting there by myself, and he said, Hey, 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 you get out of here. I don't want any defendants sitting in my courtroom by themselves. You go back out there in the uh-huh. hallway. And wait until your lawyer gets here. And I had to stand up and say, oh, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't introduce myself. And the judge started laughing and the prosecutor started laughing and I made myself laugh because I didn't want to disadvantage my client. But afterward, I was thinking about that. What is it about this judge when he sees a middle-aged black man in a suit and a tie sitting at defense counsel's table? It doesn't occur to him that's the lawyer. When I think about that judge dealing with young defendants of color, do I think that those presumptions are going to disadvantage those young defendants? I absolutely do. You are uh, not a historian. You're a
1: law professor. And yet here you are, presuming to rewrite the history of the 20th century. I wonder if you've gotten any pushback from historians and others in academia to your
2: presumption to, you know, kind of tread on their turf we have a different vantage point. We're investigating racial history. We're investigating the story of how these communities were affected by these narratives of racial difference. And if anything, we've gotten a lot of encouragement from historians who I think would admit that they have too frequently focused on discourse among academicians. Now, The reason why I want to put up markers and monuments is because I want people in the spaces to talk more truthfully about what that history represents. You go to Germany now, and you are forced to confront the legacy of the Holocaust because that society has made a determination that it can't ignore that ugly reality. They can't be silent about it. They've got to talk about it. We do the opposite in America, and I don't think we can leave it just to historians to change that.
1: Brian, thank you.
2: You're very welcome.
1: Brian Stevenson is Executive Director of the Equal Justice Initiative and Professor of Clinical Law at NYU. (laughs)
3: Like this. <laughs>
4: there's one 20th century machine politician who towers above all the others, Richard J. Daley. Daley was mayor of Chicago from 1955 until 1976. He was also boss of the city's democratic political machine during those years.
5: He wasn't necessarily the smartest guy in the city in terms of book knowledge. He wasn't the most articulate, but he understood the way
4: the levers of power work. That's journalist Adam Cohen, co-author of a biography of Daley. He says when it comes to local power, Daley was in a class by himself.
5: There's been no political machine of the size and influence of the Chicago machine anywhere else in the country. And Daley was head of it when it was at its greatest power in terms of patronage employment, ability to turn out the vote for candidates for local and national office.
4: Now, we just spoke with a listener about how machine politics shaped 19th century New York. The same was certainly true for 20th century Chicago. The Daly machine brought physical changes to Chicago, including an expanded O'Hare International Airport and elevated expressways that crisscrossed the city. But Cohen says Daly had an essentially conservative vision for how his city should run. He had no interest in modernizing Chicago's politics.
5: He started at the very bottom of the machine as a as a foot soldier in Bridgeport. I see. So he really knew it inside out. That's right. The the machine was hierarchical. There was the boss at the very top. There were precinct captains and aldermen and other people below down to the real foot soldier who, you know, knocked on his neighbor's doors. Uh, the, the alderman who really delivered for the machine got more patronage jobs. The alderman who didn't deliver for the machine got fewer or none. If you were just a resident of a local neighborhood, you wanted to know your local guy in the machine and somewhere up, up, up the chain going all the way up to the boss would be the benefits that would eventually uh, be decided on then come back down to you.
4: Cohen says Daly's impact on the city is especially visible in housing. The city was split between white neighborhoods on the north and west sides and black neighborhoods on the south side. Daly was determined to keep it that way, especially since his own Chicago neighborhood, Bridgeport, sat right on the dividing line.
5: Daley was a big proponent of segregation, a big supporter of segregation. And the pragmatic reason was that he wanted to keep the city operating the way it was because it was what put him in power. So he wanted the neighborhoods to remain intact because the neighborhoods the way they were were turning out a big vote for the machine. If there were integration, who knows what would happen? Maybe a (laughs) lot of whites would flee the city. Maybe you'd end up with a black mayor. So he wanted the status quo. And Daley very shrewdly used urban renewal. Sometimes in Chicago they called it Negro removal to take black areas that were near white areas or near the downtown and pave them, and then put some kind of highway or some big new building there. So he was actually building segregation into the very concrete of the city. An example of that is the Dan Ryan Expressway, which uh, was a dividing line between the State Street Corridor, the largest concentration of public housing in the country, on one side, and then the bungalow belt on the other side, which was the you know white ethnic neighborhoods that Daly himself came from. The Dan Ryan really followed that line.
4: Well, why did blacks go along with that? Why did they participate in the larger machine if one of its purposes was to maintain that segregation?
5: It was important for the machine to continually co-opt everyone who had votes in order to stay in power. So they needed to have a strategy for the black population. And that strategy was, uh, the black submachine, which was, uh, part of the, sh- of the machine, but a lesser part. Blacks also wanted patronage jobs. They wanted to be able to feed their families. They wanted help if they couldn't pay their electric bill. There were a lot of things that they wanted that the machine, that the ward healer in their neighborhood provided. And in exchange, they provided their votes. And uh, they didn't quite get as much patronage. They didn't have as much influence in City Hall, but they got some patronage and they had some influence. There was a congressman on the South Side named Bill Dawson who was uh, put there by the machine and kept in an office by the machine. And he presided over a black submachine that reliably turned out huge votes for the machine and for Mayor Daley when he personally ran and got back things in return. So, um you know, it's ironic because people do think of Daley as being, you know, someone who is not well inclined towards blacks and certainly not in favor of civil rights. But he was very strategic with the black submachine in giving
4: the community enough to turn out a strong vote. How did Daley's actions differ from those of any other big city mayor when it came to racial segregation. And what are the longer-term consequences of the power of the daily machine? Yeah, I mean you could
5: contrast it with New York City, where for part of the time that Daly was in office, there was, you know, Mayor Lindsay who was elected, you know, on a much more liberal platform and much more supportive of integration. Daly really represented the old order till the very end. He believed that the neighborhoods should remain ethnic enclaves, and he was not interested in fair housing. And as I say, he was building these barriers, you know, everywhere to uh, keep the black neighborhoods where they were. And, uh, you know, there were two ramifications of this. One is that um, it did keep the population more stable. Uh, we didn't see the white flight in Chicago that we saw in places like Detroit, where Chicago really retained its white middle class. But the cost of that was that it, Chicago also became the most segregated major city in America. So these walls were very real, and it's something that one can see sometimes just walking around Chicago. Uh, It's just less of a mix
4: in a lot of places Hmm. than there are in other big cities. Daly is seen as a uh, master of wielding political power. What's the biggest mistake he made? I mean, I think the biggest mistake he had,
5: I would say, was really a, a moral one that, you know, at his core, Daly really was a tribal guy. He was a man from Bridgeport who believed in Bridgeport and believed in his neighborhood. And he was really never able to empathize with the other. And the other in this case were, you know, in many cases, African-Americans who lived just a few blocks away
4: from where he was born. That's fascinating, Adam. So you're saying that in a way he was too local. He surely was a local power, but he was a man almost of his particular neighborhood rather than the entire city, not to mention metropolitan area. I think that's exactly right. He really was always a a man of Bridgeport, You know,
5: it, it, to be a truly great man, the sort of person we would like to be mayor, he would really have an understanding of all the people of Chicago and try to help all of them. So um, if we see him as a political creature, he did pretty well. But as a, a leader of a city, to, to be so indifferent to the needs and legitimate wishes of about half of the city, that's a huge moral failing, and that is part of his legacy. I fell in love
3: again All things go, all things go drove to Chicago All things know all
6: things know
0: the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way.
3: And how do you make sense of the narratives we're told about how change happens and how change happened in that period? Artists often get the blame, don't
6: they? In terms of gentrification. that kind of change. You know, there was a lot of mythology about what what caused gentrification in New York City, and two groups that were really blamed were artists and white gay men. They were both fundamentally blamed for gentrification. But now that we're more adult and we understand how things actually work, gentrification was policy. Mm -hmm. There was a deliberate decision to stop building low-income housing and to start giving tax breaks to luxury developers like Donald Trump, who built all of his uh, luxury buildings with corporate welfare mm-hmm. based on our tax money. I said it was law and lending. That's right.
3: So when you like to say, you know, we are growing up and we know better, but people don't know better. This is not a well-known story still, I don't think.
6: Well, I think that the, the origins of contemporary gentrification start with, um, after World War II, the G.I. Bill. And this was a way for the federal government to give, give a lot of money to developers who were creating the suburbs through the bodies of the vets. So the vets got very low income, very low interest loans to buy housing in the suburbs, but the suburbs were racist and it was only for white people. Mm-hmm. So this is the period that we call white flight after World War II where a lot of ethnic whites take advantage of these loans and move out of the city. And this is the time of low rents, open city, a lot of political movements are starting to develop. And then in the 70s, and I think it's really a reaction to the radicalism of urban life in the 60s and 70s, we start to see redevelopment. The initial myth was that the city was broke and that by bringing in richer people, we would expand our tax base. But as we all know now, New York is overflowing with rich people mm-hmm. and all of our public services are in disarray. So that was clearly a lie. And then, and then we see the development of luxury housing and it's aimed at the children of white flight, mm-hmm. the children of these people who move to the suburbs, who come to New York having been suburbanized, which is a new f- cultural phenomena, and they want to trade freedom for security. They come from the gated community mentality, and they want things that are familiar. They've lost that taste for difference Mm -hmm. that has always come to represent the city life. That's very
3: much the story that you write up in The Gentrification of the Mind, that book. Right. Remind me and and the audience how this came into your life, how you started hearing these different attitudes. I think it was your students, right?
6: No, I, um, you know, it's funny because I've been publishing novels since 1984, which is quite a long time. And if I look back at my early novels, I can see that gentrification is happening in the background of everyone's life, but I don't really know what it is. Mm-hmm suddenly there 's all these regular white people suddenly there 's cash machines mm-hmm. suddenly, and only at about uh, five or ten years into it did I realize oh this is this is what 's happening. this mm-hmm. is planned development, but it lurks in the background earlier, so i I, I understood it from the beginning, but in an, an instinctive way
3: but in terms of people 's attitudes i mean that 's what you 're getting at in what you had just said is people are bringing different attitudes along with those things changing on the street.
6: Well, you know, um, there's also this very strong correlation between gentrification and the AIDS crisis, and that's something that I address in my book, Gentrification of the Mind. Because don't forget that the AIDS crisis began in 1981, which is right at the beginning of the high point of of the kick-starting of gentrification. And so you have key neighborhoods where you have very high death rates And those neighborhoods now are among some of the most gentrified neighborhoods in Mm -hmm. the city. East Village, West Village, Lower East Side, Harlem, Chelsea. In fact, the two most gentrified cities in America are New York and San Francisco. Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of people dying and apartments going to market rate with great rapidity in key neighborhoods just at the time of gentrification. And that's certainly a factor in turning things over. It seems like this whole story is related to our policing crisis too. How do you see that? Well, I mean, now we're seeing our mayor trying to gentrify Brownsville, East New York. You know, he he doesn't want, I mean, uh, developers do not want there to be any kind of autonomous people of color neighborhoods left in New York. And through the guise of what they call affordable housing, which is not affordable, they're going to systematically gentrify those neighborhoods.
4: They house tax raised up, gentrification on
7: the rise, they like to pay yup. It's no surprise when white folks moving in, cause they got the
4: money in time to pursue the trends. Same trans, be the end of us pure. Mom and Pop store replaced by Couture. a Starbucks here, better Starbucks there. How much coffee you need, my God? it's unfair. They move away from the birds to
7: escape the monotony. Bring along with them, they polite and pottery. Classes and all that fast shit. My city don't look the same. What a shame chance again.
8: Richard J. Daly died in 1976 during his sixth term in office. By then, black Chicagoans had begun moving from the segregated south side to white neighborhoods on the city's west side. The Supreme Court had also struck down restrictive covenants that barred blacks from living in certain neighborhoods. As they settled in new neighborhoods, blacks encountered plenty of racial hostility, followed by a slow rolling wave of white flight and resegregation. Reporter Stephen Jackson has the story of one suburban community just west of Chicago that welcomed African Americans.
9: Moving to Oak Park for me was like uh, Dorothy waking up in the land of Oz. Suddenly she wakes up and everything's in color.
7: This is Crystal Shannon Morla. She was just seven years old when her family came to Oak Park. It was 1968, and they had just moved out of a low-income, hyper-segregated African-American neighborhood on Chicago's west side.
9: Everything looked different. The houses were bigger. The people looked different. This is the first time we ever saw white people in real life.
7: On the first day, she and her sisters were playing in the backyard when they saw the neighbor kids out in their yard.
9: There was a moment where all the kids, me and my sibs and the kids next door just sort of came up to the fence and stared at each other. And it's like we were just quiet, staring at each other. It seemed like forever. <laughs> and and then my sister says, That that boy, he has blue eyes. She said, Can you see out of those eyes? And they were just quiet. <laughs> Their mouths dropped. I imagine what they were thinking, also Was they're looking at the, our skin. Look at that skin, you know, like chocolate, whatever. And then we just went back to playing.
7: Shannon Morla and her family were one of the first African American families to move to Oak Park around this time. She didn't know it, but they were pioneers, or maybe guinea pigs, in an ambitious social experiment. It was spearheaded by a housing activist named Roberta Raymond. She didn't like what she saw happening in Chicago neighborhoods resegregating from white to black, with
10: disinvestment
7: and blight close behind.
10: In many people's minds, integration was that brief period of time between when the first black family moved in and the last white family moved out. And Oak Park had to really look and say, what can we do to make this different?
7: Raymond founded a nonprofit called the Oak Park Housing Center and started working with local government and community groups and law enforcement to develop an integration strategy.
10: It was based on the idea that you couldn't just let the housing market do whatever was going to happen, that you had to intervene.
7: So the village passed a fair housing ordinance, and unlike other towns, they trained realtors and landlords to follow it. If someone felt that they had been discriminated against, there was a village staffer to field that complaint. Raymond's Housing Center also did what you might call reverse steering, encouraging newcomers to spread throughout the village instead of clustering by race. And they bought ad space in national magazines, promoting Oak Park as a safe, racially integrated community. This was a new idea, using diversity as a marketing tool.
10: You have to send this message that racial change in a community can be a very enriching experience. It can make a better community. That is a hard lesson for a lot of people to learn.
7: For some people, racial change felt like an invasion, They didn't want African-Americans in their town, and Raymond was telling them they were wrong. She got a lot of threatening midnight phone calls.
10: Oh, yeah. I mean, these would be people who call and say, um, I can remember one call. It was like, you know, nigger lover, you better get out of town before we, you know, take care of you. Or things, you know, very threatening phone calls. And I had a file at the housing center of hate mail, and it was vicious.
7: But most people weren't vicious. Most were just uncomfortable with change. There were probably lots of dinner table conversations like this one from a 1974 documentary about Oak Park.
10: I think another interesting question is, when would we, or any of us, at, at what percentage would we move? Um, when a certain percentage of blacks moved in, when would we consider leaving? Not out of fear, just because it's um, uncomfortable to be in the minority. And I think myself it would be somewhere in the neighborhood between 60 and 80%.
11: I wouldn't disagree with that, but I
8: think the rate of change is a big factor, too. If it had become only 40 percent but was changing 15 or 20 percent a year, I might be inclined to
7: leave sooner if I were inclined to leave at all. As it turned out, a lot of white people were inclined to leave. In the 1970s, about 10,000 whites left in a village of 60,000. But over time, Oak Park's integration strategy worked. Amanda Seligman is a historian who has studied racial change on Chicago's West Side, and she says Oak Park enjoyed certain advantages that made integration easier.
6: One is that they were their own municipality, so they could do things that the city of Chicago as a whole couldn't do.
7: Like enforcing the fair housing rules and shaping the local housing market. The village was also pretty liberal, so Raymond's strategy had a lot of local support.
6: And ultimately, also, it was wealthier. Uh, and so that those African-Americans who were going to be able to buy into Oak Park were just a much smaller proportion of the population. So the tolerance for a few African-Americans of wealth was greater than it might have been for a larger population of poorer black people.
7: Today, the population is about 64 percent white, 22 percent black and 7 percent Latino. Demographically, that's similar to the metropolitan area although Latinos are underrepresented. And while other towns have racial and ethnic enclaves, Oak Park is integrated, almost block by block. In the nearby suburbs, it's a different story. Maywood is mostly African-American. Cicero is mostly Latino. Elmwood Park, mostly white. Some of these towns have gotten more segregated in the last 20 years, and Chicago remains one of the most segregated cities in the country. Here's Roberta Raymond again.
10: Segregation is so inbred in American life, that the opportunity that Oak Park affords a family, a child growing up, is invaluable. My grandson is 10 years old, and he doesn't think about the fact that he has kids of all races in his school. That is not something he thinks about. And I think if children throughout the country grew up that way, you know, we wouldn't have to have some of the things that go on in this society.
7: Raymond thinks big social problems like mass incarceration and generational poverty wouldn't be so big if more communities were integrated. Again, Crystal Shannon Morla.
9: It made every difference in my life. Literally, my life will be different now.
7: Growing up in Oak Park, she had white and black friends. She went to a good school where she had access to extracurriculars that just didn't exist in her old Chicago neighborhood. And she grew up being comfortable around people of different races. She's grateful for that.
9: I'm always aware of that. I'm always aware of that. So it makes me want to contribute and and, uh, give back.
7: Today, she's a psychologist and a mentor at an after-school program in Oak Park, trying to help academically struggling students catch up. Because even though Oak Park is diverse, it's grappling with a racial achievement
9: gap. These are big problems, and so we have to continue to come together as a community and Uh, work on these things and not give up. There's more work to be done.
7: Now, she just has to do what Raymond and others did 50 years ago. Organize from the ground up, look for new strategies, and hopefully lead the way for the rest of the country.
3: Let me tell y'all what it's like
7: being male, middle class, and white. It's a bitch if you don't believe. Listen up to my new CD, Sham On.
3: can tell the difference between a city and a business park, it may not be so clear. A corporate buying boom since the financial crash is gobbling up city property and leaving us with places that are literally not our town. Purchasing took off after 2008 when foreclosure rates were high, bank loans were drying up, and record levels of commercial properties were standing vacant. Last year, major acquisitions by corporations in 100 large cities topped one trillion dollars. And by major, we do mean major. In New York, that's only counting property buys worth five million dollars or more. The great corporate buyup is leaving us with more mega projects, more private space, and more people, but less of everything else. Most noticeably, less of everything public, from parks and plazas and elected governance. And with all that private space comes private police. Yeah, the reliance on armed private contractors outside of the public command is no longer only a phenomenon for our embassies in Kabul and Baghdad. Increasingly, it's the norm at home. Angry about police violence? Pushing for more effective community oversight? We may get more and more of that just as we get less and less police. There are other outcomes, too. All that concentration of wealth's matched by a concentration of, you guessed it, poverty. Last year, the Century Foundation reported that since 2000, the number of people living in high poverty, concentrations, ghettos, or slums, had nearly doubled. The world's great cities have been places where the poor could make an impact on commerce, cuisine, culture. The poor can't do that in a privately owned business park. As sociologist Saskia Sassen put it recently, the corporate city's a place where low-wage workers can work, but not make. There are alternative models of development. But first, we have to get to know our cities better. Just who owns what? And who's getting tax breaks? Is the great corporate buy-up really what we want?
0: My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time, and the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestofleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
9: The
12: Fair Housing Act case, because this is also really important, and it's going to have long-term impact uh, in other areas, right? Now, uh, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to reject a case that was brought by the state of Texas. And the state of Texas was awarding tax credits for low-income housing in specific neighborhoods, specifically minority-dominated neighborhoods, but rejecting tax credits in white-majority neighborhoods and they were justifying this by saying well we are following the rules of the fair housing act we're not being discriminatory in our intent we're just following federal mandates which govern the you know the, the use of tax credits well, the argument that the inclusive community project was making was the outcomes, the impact that that your decision was having was discriminatory. You may not have had any discriminatory intent, although, well, all right, let's just—I'm not going to editorialize. Uh, Let's stipulate that you have no discriminatory intent. The impact of what you're doing is creating discrimination. And that is if you only give low-income tax uh, credits to developers in minority neighborhoods, essentially what you're doing is... only having low-income housing in minority neighborhoods. (laughs) I mean, it it, it is creating, it's ghettoizing low-income people and hurting the ability uh, into minority-majority neighborhoods and hurting the development opportunities there. Because let's face it, development comes to neighborhoods where there's money. And... The Supreme Court agreed with the plaintiffs here that disparate outcomes, this notion that you can look at what the outcomes are here and see if it creates discrimination in some way or impacts a neighborhood in a different way, then you can actually consider that now that is a long-standing principle that a lot of people felt uh, was going to fall by the wayside because well let's face it I mean uh, this is a right-wing court uh, this is going to have impact now now according to uh, Kennedy who wrote the I think the majority opinion this um, this use of this dynamic, of disparate impact, I should say, should be very limited and you should be very cautious in its use. But this could have implications for things like the Voting Rights Act, right, where intent isn't necessarily um, uh, addressed in terms of how a change to voting procedures should be judged in a case where the the department of justice says there's discrimination here uh so and we'll talk more about uh, this with with the when we recap this term of the supreme court but the the point is these are both very good rulings and a lot of people thought that this housing case was um, going to be the first attempt by the court to chip away at this concept of disparate impact or that the the idea that you could look at disparate impact as a way of judging um, whether or not there's discrimination. So uh, this is good news, very good news.
4: Ain't that good news? Man, ain't that news?
9: My baby's coming home tomorrow, ain't that good news, man ain't that news, good news, good news.
0: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, increasing federal resources for affordable housing. April, as it turns out, is Fair Housing Month, a time to celebrate the Fair Housing Act, which passed in 1968 in the aftermath of Dr. King's assassination. It is considered the final great legislative achievement of the civil rights era. But sadly, as we've just heard, economic injustice, racism, white flight, and gentrification are plaguing residents of affordable housing and the neighborhoods they live in, and the fundamental issue of access is still of critical concern. Last month, Senator Maria Cantwell of Washington State, along with Washington City mayors, and A-C-T-I-O-N, which spells action and also stands for a call to invest in our neighborhood, a coalition of over 1,300 national, state, and local affordable housing advocates, launched a national campaign to increase federal resources for affordable housing. This group is calling for a 50% expansion of the low income housing tax credit or LIHTC sometimes pronounced litec which would finance approximately 400,000 additional units of affordable housing nationwide over the next decade while tax credits may not seem like the most progressive call to action it is one of the most strategic moves available with a record of bipartisan support the bottom line is not that complicated we're just talking about subsidizing low income housing development and so what we're up against of course are people who often oppose this type of housing in their neighborhoods for all of the obvious reasons, ignorance, fear, etc. But their fears of dropping property values are hardly ever the reality, especially when the projects are well-managed and built in diverse neighborhoods with affordable transportation options. This is the message that needs to be amplified by our representatives. In a recent meeting with local Washington business people, Senator Cantwell said, quote, We need the leagues of cities to get all their mayors to write to all their senators asking to support this concept. We need every city council and every mayor across the United States talking about this, unquote and that's where you come in, reach out to your legislators and tell them you support the expansion of LIHTC. Then go one step further by asking them to deliver a report outlining the state of housing affordability in your state or district. You can also help spread the word about this plan of action by talking about the proposal on social media using the hashtag LIHTC and tagging your legislators' accounts. If you've struggled with access to affordable housing or homelessness yourself, consider sharing your story with Senator Cantwell so she can make the case for LIHTC expansion on Capitol Hill. The link to share your story is pinned to her Twitter profile right now, at Senator Cantwell. If you'd like to get more involved in on-the-ground efforts, find your local community development corporation, CDCs, who are oftentimes driving the development of affordable housing projects from the outset community-wealth.org is a great place to search for a CDC or similar organization. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestofalife.com. So if providing decent housing and economic justice for those living below the poverty line is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the campaign to increase the low-income housing tax credit via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. So as we come to the end of Fair Housing Month, reflect on the work that still needs to be done to fulfill the promise of the struggle for civil rights and ask yourself, what would Dr. King do?
4: Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's
5: how you make a difference in this fickle world of change.
11: Many of you have written to me about another topic and have asked me to comment on it, and I thought today is as good a day as any. And this has to do with gentrification. That's a polite word for the following. It's when uh, a city, a neighborhood in a city, a region, suddenly begins to experience rising prices. Prices of homes and rental prices, prices for renting an apartment. And when the prices start to go up and go up quickly, something happens which we call gentrification. People who can't afford to pay the higher prices for the rentals of apartments or the higher prices for homes, condos, co-ops, uh, single-family residences, and so on, basically are pushed out. The renters go first because they live on leases that are up within a matter usually of months, but the homeowners disappear. Those who can afford it, uh, they reach old age, they move out, they die, and the people coming in have to pay much, much higher prices. So, to make a long story short, the simple story, gentrification means richer people push out middle and lower income people from parts of cities. Well, now let's analyze what fuels this. What makes this happen? Why is gentrification happening? And it is indeed happening. In virtually every city of the United States, of course, some cities more than others, wealthy people, people at the top 5% or so of the population, are deciding that they would like to live in such and such a city or like to live in such-and-such a neighborhood within the city. Typically, these are neighborhoods that are already well-heeled, where there are nice restaurants, where there are charming parks, where there are a lovely set of uh, fitness centers and nail spas, and you get the picture. And they have the money to go there. And in town after town, city after city, we see this. Sometimes, almost an entire city is gentrified. There we could pick examples, say like San Francisco, which is going through the process, or Seattle. Other times, it's major parts of a city, as in New York, and many other examples. I wanted to explain, then, what causes this. And the answer as to why gentrification is happening now, and happening pretty fast, and happening in a very stark way, is fundamentally the product of the growing inequality of income driven by a capitalist system that works that way. I want to remind you all of that bestseller from last year, book called Capital in the 21st Century, authored by Thomas Piketty, P-I-K-E-T-T-Y, a book which has 600-odd pages, all documented that wherever and whenever capitalism has become the dominant economic system in a society, it creates income inequality and wealth inequality you do know that the top 10% of the United States owns and earns more than the rest of us combined. Yes, that's right. It's a highly unequal society. And those at the top want to live in just the place that suits them. It should be with a nice park, it should be near nice restaurants, and it seems it should be, as much as possible, near other people just like them. They want to be where the rich people go because that's what they think it means to be wealthy. And so they do. But it turns out that we have generated quite a few of them and we have made them very, very rich indeed. That's what the growing inequality means. All of us have taken an economic hit so that a very small proportion of us have a great deal of money. So they go in and they bid up the price of real estate, homes, land, apartments, in those neighborhoods they like, in those cities where they want to be. And there, gentrification begins, because very quickly, the prices get out of the reach of almost everybody. So those that are rich, but not yet super rich and who probably never will be super-rich, but they are part of the top 5%, just not part of the top 1%. They, too, are priced out of the ritziest neighborhoods. So they go to the ones nearby, the ones that haven't yet experienced the boom in prices, and they make that boom happen. If they are people who can't anymore afford the ritziest parts of Manhattan, they go to Brooklyn. If they can't afford the nicest parts of Seattle, they go to the other parts. And so very quickly, prices are driven up, and only the wealthy, some more, some less wealthy, can afford to live there. But here's the flip side of all of this. These wealthy people want to use their wealth also to not do housework, to not do more or less all the chores of life. So they want an army of cheap workers to clean their home, to walk their dog, to plan the parties for their children's birthdays, to do all the menial tasks. So here's the peculiar twist. The rich gentrify a neighborhood, but in the very act of doing that, they create a demand for low-wage workers who have to live close enough to get to the ritzy apartment, to clean it, to take care of the kids, to walk the dogs, you get the picture. So, not very far from the elegant neighborhoods are the places where their working servants live. So, we see replicated in the housing structure, in the cities, in the towns, the same gross gap, gap between rich and poor that this economic system is creating by the billion-dollar corporations at the top and the mass of people who spent last week struggling across the United States to get $15 an hour, which is what you pay to the well-paid among the folks doing all the work for the 5% who are gentrifying our cities. What's the attempt to deal with this like Well, it's a little bit discouraging for me as an economist. Yes, I understand why one would try to slow this process down by rent control policies, passing laws that limit how quickly landlords can raise the rents in this period of gentrification, and how other people fight for zoning regulations. But here's the basic problem. The underlying inequality is constantly undermining the rules and regulations. Of course, the landlords work relentlessly to undo rent control, to change the zoning. These are all efforts to stop something which is being driven by a system that produces ever more inequality, that puts into the hands of those at the top more and more financial resources to undercut the rules. Much the better solution would not be another rent control law, another zoning ordinance, another rule, another regulation. They don't last, they don't work, they don't survive. Better would be not to distribute income and wealth so unequally in the first place then we wouldn't have these fights, and we wouldn't have to have gentrification. We could have neighborhoods that are genuinely a mixture of different kinds of people, because they wouldn't have stupefyingly rich at one end and menial servants at the other. That's the solution. And the way to get that, well, again, you know me by now. If you want to distribute income and wealth in an equal, roughly equal way, so we don't have polarities of rich and poor, and all that goes with that in the way of social problems, then you ought to put the distribution of income, the determination of wages and salaries and all the rest, put that in the hands of the majority make it a democratic decision, which it is not now. Let us decide democratically whether we want to live in a society where the gap between rich and poor is relatively small, so we are all on roughly comparable circumstances and our neighborhoods can become diverse, mixed, rich in difference. Or let the system go as it is, undemocratic, with the results of grotesque inequality and the ripped apart, gentrified cities and neighborhoods that we complain about, even though it seems hard for so many Americans to recognize that a root cause of all of this is an economic system that distributes the rewards of work in so fundamentally unequal a way.
0: We just heard clips featuring On The Media talking with Brian Stevenson about the terrorism of racism in the South being the catalyst for the so-called Great Migration that moved enormous numbers of black people to the North and West. Backstory examined the very intentional policies of Chicago, just one of the cities absorbing that Great Migration to keep the races segregated and ghettoized. Laura Flanders talked with Sarah Schulman about the mechanics of gentrification. A second clip from Backstory looked at one of Chicago's neighborhoods, Oak Park, that managed to do things a little bit differently. Laura Flanders took a look at the great corporate buyout that's been happening under our noses. The Majority Report discussed the Supreme Court ruling from last year that upheld the real meaning of the Fair Housing Act. Our activism for today is to support Senator Maria Cantwell's efforts to increase federal resources to subsidize affordable housing, and finally, we just heard from Professor Richard Wolf on Economic Update discussing the phenomenon of gentrification and its underlying causes. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing, and now, we'll hear from you.
13: Hey Jay, it's Craig. I'm behind on my podcast, but I wanted to weigh in on your request for comments about voting in this year's presidential election. I'm a lifelong Ohioan. I first voted for Dukakis in 88, so I've given this a lot of thought over the years. This time around I was an early and strong supporter of Sanders, as I suspect most of your listeners are. I voted for him in the primary in Ohio, and I would still vote for him if my state hadn't gone yet. But in the general I'm planning to vote for Clinton. I'm glad you mentioned the theory of change because it gets at why staunch Progressor and Sanders backer like me wants Hillary to win. Simply because I think our movement, uh, the revolution, if you will, has a better chance to continue and grow under a Clinton presidency than it would back when Obama won or if a Republican won this time. Seems to me that the skepticism for her presidency is going to be enormous um, as soon as she takes office. So people are going to be paying close attention Hopefully the activism to push her to enact progressive, a progressive agenda will be there from the very beginning. Um, I've never seen anything like this in my lifetime. So I'm really hopeful <laughs> for the first time in a while and uh, I've mentioned to you before that I'm, I'm not generally a very uh, optimistic person. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is on a personal level. Here's how it works for someone like me, who voted for Nader in 2000, and then got blamed for George W. Bush all those years. Now, I still think that's misguided, but going into this election, it also encourages me to vote for Clinton, because in the unlikely event that she loses, I will be able to say to my mostly Democratic but not politically obsessed friends and family members, that, hey, I voted for Clinton, so it's not my fault that she lost the presidency, if she did, which, again, I don't think is very likely. But I'll be able to turn around and say, but I voted for Sanders in the primary. And if the Democratic Party had picked Sanders, he likely would have beaten the Republican, because the evidence now seems to be pretty clear that he's a more popular and more trusted candidate than she is. So, anyways, I want to keep it brief, so I'll end there. And just wanted to give you my thoughts. Again, uh, thanks for the show and everything you do, and I'll talk to you later.
14: Bye. Hey, Jay, this is NoMordo calling from San Jose. Just calling in reply to the caller urging us to unite behind whatever Democratic candidate is chosen in the primary. I have to say, I... I strongly disagree with that, I I, I can't do that. I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I'm independent, I'm nonpartisan. Ever since I first registered to vote, I've never been affiliated with any party. If some folks want to put party above issues, above people, that's their prerogative, that's not how I see it. I put issues first. And for me, some of the major issues that I support are getting money out of politics, so overturning Citizens United. I'm against the death penalty. I'm against needless wars like we have in Iraq. I'm not for fracking, because fracking poisons our water. So when you, when you look at all these issues, there's really only one candidate that aligns with, with the issues, just those few issues that I've stated. So. Sorry, no, there's no way I would ever unite Blue, no matter who, as I've seen on Twitter, all over the place. That's absolute nonsense. You have to go with the issues, not party. Putting party first is what's gotten us into this mess of compromise and neoliberalism. So, no, you gotta vote for your conscience. Vote for the issues. Don't vote for party.
8: Hey Jay, name's Alex, calling from Illinois, long-time listener, first-time caller, calling in response to the discussion on voting strategy, and what I'm increasingly seeing is the sort of divide on the left with regards to the upcoming election. So, here's my piece. Barring some catastrophic misstep on the part of either candidate, and I should be clear, at this point I do not believe either candidate has made such a misstep, although both have certainly come close, I will vote for the Democratic candidate in the election this fall. The reason for this is a recognition of my own privilege and a belief that our system is inevitably built on tension and concession. I you feel know that my position can be best related by using the idea of the trolley car dilemma. For those that don't know, the trolley car dilemma is an ethical problem in which it's positive that a trolley or train is about to run over four people, and you are tasked with taking some course of action that would directly result in another person's death but would save the four people on the track. Given my principles and beliefs presented with this scenario, I would certainly take the action that saves four people, be it through sacrificing one person or by even throwing myself on the track if that's the action required. I remember having this discussion with my brother and him giving the answer that he would not pull the lever or push the person or whatever it was, and that he would let the four people on the track die, his reason being that his principles forbade him from doing any harm. I think that in some case, the progressive-minded folks who are saying that they will abstain or vote third party seem to be operating under a similar moral grounding, though played out on a larger scale. This said, though, I see my role in an election as being this person in the trolley dilemma, and as I've said, I will take the option that I think will save the four people on the track. While in some ways I may understand the urge not to vote, to not involve oneself in the dilemma, I think that at the end of the day, in this dilemma and in this election, people will still die. Because my beliefs in elections center on attempting to do the least amount of harm, I also want to draw an Elon's statement of earn this damn vote or lose, which the caller last week brought up, but I feel like he didn't bring up the context in which Elon is speaking. While all swing voters are in some ways the people who have the option to change the trolley path, not all swing voters are also people on the track. Elon is speaking as someone who, no matter which party is elected, is still in a state of crisis as a black man in a country that targets and discriminates against black people. As such, I understand his reticence and toward toward the whole election. The people I hope to address in this are those who, like me, occupy a position of relative privilege, who are not people on the track. I think that they are behaving in a manner that is in some way similar to my brother, which, again, while I understand, I would ask them to reconsider it speaks to a state of privilege to be able to hold this sort of stand-by-my-principles position. Many people in our country may have their lives and the lives of those they love riding on this election. For the sake of those people, then, I would ask that if you're a person of relative privilege, you re-examine how your privilege of being able to hold to principles in the first place and not have to worry about survival may be coloring your perception of the election. I know that in some cases, the choice to pull that switch may cause the trolley to hit one of the four people who would have been hit had you done nothing. But if we can prevent that trolley from killing by the tarnishing of our principles by a vote, are we not called on to save as many lives as possible? I recognize that in some ways this rhetoric at the end may sound close to something like Big Cheney's 1% spiel, but I think that while the principle may hold similarly, the scope and the actions suggest are so vastly different as to not really war in comparison. Principles aren't something that any one political orientation holds a monopoly on. They are individually held. As such, I would ask that if you personally hold the commitment that I believe a number of people do, you cogitate on the implications of the maxim, do no harm, or non-maleficence in general. When you consider it, though, remember what Jay said, that even not voting or voting third party is in itself an action that has impact. I know this has been rambly and probably a little bit more abstract than necessary. Sorry if it doesn't make much sense, but maybe you'll get something out of it. Anyways, um, love the show. Keep on keeping on. Love and light.
15: Hey, Jay. This is Marty. I am a trans woman from Madison, Wisconsin. Um, I'm calling in reference to episode 1004. And what I'd like to say is um, it's actually not about the content of the show, but the comments after about voting. Generally, I agree, with Elon James White uh, about a lot of things, but this whole kind of black and white attitude about either they earn your vote or else uh, this binary choice, uh, I don't think you can as a trans person myself. I can't afford to do that. I can't afford to have eight more years of George W. Bush because I hate to say this, but any Democrat is going to be infinitely better. Or you could say, uh, I wouldn't say that if you vote for Hillary Clinton, you get George Bush. I would. I don't know anybody that would say that. And as a trans person, this isn't this isn't just some uh, bucket decision. It has an effect on my life on my security to make it some kind of macho you either earn my vote or forget it you can't do that in this ele- especially this election cycle you're talking about candidates that for lgbt people especially like ted cruz They're scary, their positions are scary. They want basically to make me going to the bathroom illegal because in one place I'll get beat up and in the other place I'll get arrested. What kind of choice is that? So I'm gonna vote because in the United States, we have a two-party system, that's just reality. And the primaries are the place where you pick The best candidate. The general is where you pick the least worst. In the UK, they have a coalition government. We don't have that here. So you have. Once it comes down to the general, you have you do have a binary choice. Or as you said in your comments, your vote doesn't matter. If a multi-millionaire like like Ross Perot can run a an effective third party campaign and only get 20% of the vote, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. You are throwing your vote away if you vote third party. Support the most progressive candidate in the primaries. I already did vote for Bernie in Wisconsin primary. So all I can do. Vote like your life depends on it because it may. Especially if you're in a marginalized community. So think about that. Thanks, Jay.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. So we just heard a few voicemails all on the same topic. The question that they were responding to was... Not who are you voting for and why, but who are you voting for and what is your theory of change to support that vote? That is the much, much more important question, I think. Because if you just ask someone why they're voting, you can get any kind of crazy answer. You could have people saying, I just like one person's tie better than the the other. And if that's their reason, that's their reason. But that is not a theory of change. So the theory of change requires that you actually have a strategy, you have a vision for where you want the country to go, and you have an idea of how to get from here to there, and that your vote is one element of that strategy. So this is the only way that voting makes sense to me, because everything else is completely arbitrary. If you have an idea of where you want to go, then your vote should fall in line with a strategy to get us there, And that is your theory of change. So today we heard from a few people who explained their theories of change, I think, very well. And then one person who didn't. He had a very strong opinion of how he was going to vote. But I didn't hear anything that resembled a strategy of how to get from where we are to where he presumably wants to go. So maybe we'll hear back from him and he'll explain his theory of change. I would be happy to to hear it. I'd love to hear any comments from anyone else on who you're going to vote for, either in the primary or the general or both, and why, but not just why, how does it fit into your theory of change? Now, there's one other option, which is you can disagree with me and you can say that having a theory of change doesn't matter. That is not the best way to strategize your choice of who to vote for. I would love to hear that idea because I can't even fathom that. But if someone has an idea of, of why... A theory of change is not the best way to determine who you should vote for. Uh, I would love to get that comment. But the bottom line is, if you are eligible to vote, you will have an impact on this election. It doesn't even matter if you're registered. If you're eligible, you are having an impact. It's To put it in the terms of the trolley car dilemma that one caller uh, pointed out, if you are standing at the switch then you can choose to pull it or not pull it. Either way, you are making a choice and affecting the outcome. So being eligible to vote is the equivalent of standing next to that switch. Regardless of who you vote for or whether you vote at all, you are making a choice that is having an impact on the outcome of the election. The only way to not have an impact is to not be eligible. So in some states, that can mean you can become a felon and then you can't vote. So Good for you, you're not having an impact, or you can renounce your citizenship. But otherwise, your action, or lack thereof, is having an effect. Secondly today, another quick reminder that the podcast awards nominations are happening right now through the end of the month. So please nominate the show. You, you I think I said it wrong before. Nominations happen only once. Voting, which happens later, is a daily Thing. So don't worry about that right now. Right now, we're just nominating the show. You can nominate us in the People's Choice and the News and Politics categories, just at, like normal. You do that once, you put in the name of the show and the URL, you know, bestoftheleft.com, and that's it. And so you can only nominate the form once. So nominate us for those two categories, and then anyone else you want to nominate for any other category, please feel free. So Best of the Left in People's Choice and News and Politics, And that's it, at least for this month, and then I'll let you know when the voting happens. Finally, just a quick note that I am making changes to the messy technical back end of the show. Basically, the milestones I hit recently, the 10 years and the 1,000 episodes, it, it, it was sort of like when I turned 30 and I finally decided to go to the optometrist and realized I needed glasses. Well, the show has been going along just fine for a long time now. You know, but it's only, it's not great. It's just fine. And it turns out it needs glasses. So I'm going to be doing some upgrades to the technological stuff that I'm not going to bore you with. But there may be some hiccups. Your feed may refresh and it'll try to download every episode in the feed or things can go weird sometimes. I really hope they won't, but I think that that probably will happen, but only once if things go as planned. So just be aware of that. And if anything strange happens at all, if you stop getting new episodes updated to your device of choice, please let me know. And the proper feed to subscribe to is always going to be listed on the website. Just go to bestofbluff.com and click click subscribe up at the top and then choose the way that you want to subscribe, and the correct link is always going to be listed there, so you'll always be able to re-find the show if you lose it, which you shouldn't, but you just never know when things might go wrong. So just a warning, I'm going to be doing that over the next week or more, and I wanted to give you the heads up. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show, of course, by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews in iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all the great content we put out there and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that